Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey friends, this is our second worship service that we're putting on the podcast. We've already put up one worship service and then a a special segment on uh, establishing a will and a trust that Sarah Beth and I did that uh, I think is really good. So if you haven't already, check that one out. That's episode two. Um, But this this worship service last Sunday dealt with uh, the story of Esther and in particular what it means to follow God in our case, Christ Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, in a context of persecution where um, maybe there's power structures that's aligned against us, Uh, there's a a great cost to be paid for following uh, the Lord publicly. So we talk about that and uh, apply it to to modern geopolitics, I guess, talking about Afghani Christians and the persecution of the church uh, in different geographic regions. Um, we, we talk about, um, you know, the psalm deals with some of the similar themes, and then James, the James reading, talks about the power of prayer and the power of a righteous person praying, and, um, and then with the gospel reading, it's an exhortation to pursue holiness and righteousness um, in light of the previous readings, but also knowing that there is a, a punishment for those who choose to engage in idolatry and worship of the world and fear of the world. So um, I I think it's a good, well-rounded uh, time in the Word, so I hope you do too. I hope it's a blessing to you. I hope you come away feeling encouraged, but also just more clear about the purpose of our lives lived in the light of Christ. So God bless you as you tend upon these readings. Now, I don't know why, but the Revised Common Lectionary has us hopping to Esther for one week. We're going to hear from primarily, we're going to do the whole chapter, chapter 7, and then skip ahead to chapter 9 when it explains where the holiday of Purim came from. Esther is a, a small book in the Old Testament. Um, Esther and Ruth are kind of anomalous. They, they report on individual women at different points in history. Uh, Ruth is impoverished, just a peasant lady. Esther is not. Uh, the, the, the lead up to today's reading is um, Esther is a, a noble woman. She's, she and all the Jews are in the dispersion. The, the Israelites have been invaded. The Judeans have been invaded and, and put out into, uh, thrown across the world. But they find themselves in the midst of the Persian Empire. King Xerxes is in uh, power and he has a wife that doesn't treat him good. She disrespects him publicly at the beginning of the book, and he says, I'm done with this wife. We're going to have a beauty contest, and I'm going to pick a new wife. And so Esther wins, and she's a Jew, but nobody knows it. Another Jew in the, the king's palace is Mordecai. That's, that's Esther's uncle, and he's a high-ranking official who actually saves the king's bacon at one point, but then the king forgets about it for a time. Meanwhile, the bad guy is named Haman, H-A-M-A-N. And he uh, erects a, a statue that everybody is supposed to worship, and he is supposed to be worshipped to some degree. And if you know about Jews, they're like Christians. They refuse to worship any gods other than their God. We acknowledge that we serve the highest God. El Elyon is what he's called in the Bible, the one who sits enthroned in the highest heavens. There might be other spiritual powers that are called gods, but there is only one true God, and we serve him, likewise the Jews. So the Jews refuse to worship Haman or his idol, 
Mordecai was seen just standing instead of bowing down, and so Haman decided he hated Mordecai and hated all the Jews, and he got the king to sign on to a new piece of legislation that anyone who would not bow to the idol would be killed. And so there was, uh, this was not the first pogrom, it was far from the last. Uh, I could preach on it today, but I've talked about it somewhat recently. I, I need to say again, I'm very concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism around the world, but especially in the, the West, formerly Christian West, you're seeing a huge turn against Jews, a uh, lot of anti-Semitism, some even spoken on the floor of our House and Senate uh, this last week. Um, I'm very concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism. Anywhere you've seen Jews live, they live differently than the people around them, and the people around them have always hated them for it. And that's why people are increasingly turning against Christians in an increasingly post-Christian United States of America. Those who still hold to a biblical standard are increasingly hated by cultural influencers and leaders. Okay, so as we're reading about the persecution of the Jews in Esther, we need to be preparing ourselves because what happens is the world collaborates and colludes against God's people for their ill. What, what we're going to get a taste of here is Esther, is, she and her uncle Mordecai talk, and Mordecai says it was for such a time as this that you were put in the king's household to influence him and save your people, the Jews. And so Esther throws a series of parties in her husband's honor, and what's going to happen here is we're going to get this reading about um, Esther finally saying to the king, here's what I want you to do. I want you to save the Jews. Here's Haman. Here's what he's done. Haman is so cocky, he knows he's going to kill all these Jews, and he's going to kill Mordecai. He has established a 50-foot tall wooden pole to either hang um, Mordecai from or impale him on. Do you all know what impaling is? It's a terrible way of killing people back in the day. Vlad the Impaler was the, the guy who became... Um, uh, Dracula, Count Dracula. If you don't know what it is, a spike is set up and they sit you on it all the way through. Um, it's, it's a terrible way to die. It, anyway, he's got that ready for Mordecai. It looks grim. There's thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews around the empire getting ready to get killed. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Um, I'm going to stop with the setup now and welcome our first reader. Our first reading is from Esther, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, which begins on page 779 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and they were drinking wine on the second day. The king asked again, again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. 
Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was re reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impel him on it. So they impelled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. The word of the Lord. So the key thing at question here is God's provision for his people. Will God protect and care for his people? And Christians have to say emphatically yes. But Christians have a different history with God than Jews. Um, and I, I, I understand different preachers don't always preach this, but it seems clear throughout the Old Testament, when the Jews are faithful to God, God is faithful to them. When they turn away from him, God lets them suffer. Now, to a degree, that's true of Christians, but Jesus himself suffered. Did Jesus turn away from the Father? Never. Peter, Paul, James, John, well, maybe not John. Well, even John. All of them suffered for the name of Christ. The first few centuries of Christianity, it was an illegal religion. It was hated by the world. Thousands and thousands of Christians were publicly mutilated and murdered for their belief in Christ Jesus. God did not protect them from getting killed. He did not make them militarily successful. One of the things that makes Christians different from Jews, I believe, as you look at the historical record is, when Christians are faithful, God protects them spiritually, but not necessarily physically in our bodies. And I think one of the things that we have to come to terms with is God might, no, God will let us suffer this side of heaven. One day we will enter into eternal bliss and there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sin. But right now we live in an age and a time where bad things happen. There are two kinds of Christians. Some look at Christians in Afghanistan. If you don't know what happened in Afghanistan, we pulled out our military forces, Taliban took over. Taliban is... is far extremist Islamist, not fan of Christians. We know for a fact that they're going door to door and killing Christians. They have been for weeks. They're eradicating the church throughout all of Afghanistan. If you believe that God protects physically those whom he loves, then you're in the position of saying that all the Afghan Christians that are getting killed right now didn't really love the Lord. I'm not willing to say that, especially when they're willing to die for their faith. When you look at the historical record, Afghanistan is far from the first and probably far from the last place. I hope it's the last place. I hope, come Lord Jesus, come today. But if, uh, as long as, before the day of the Lord, Christians are going to suffer for the name of Christ. It's just going to happen. A lot are going to die for his name's sake. We have to be very clear as Christians. Does that mean that the Lord is not happy with us? I don't think so. 
The Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. Now, the place where the clear overlap here is, was Esther willing to put her life on the line for the sake of Christ's right? Or not Christ, she didn't know Christ. God's righteousness. And the answer is yes. Before this, we didn't get to hear the conversation between her and Mordecai. She says, I'm going against a direct order from the king. If I push him on this, he could have me killed. He already killed his last wife. He could kill me. But Mordecai convinces her that her job is now to serve as an emissary of God to Xerxes. And Xerxes listens. The Jews, the part that we skipped over, the Jews were supposed to, there was supposed to be this massive pogrom against hundreds of thousands of Jews throughout the region. You can't undo an order of the king, so the king gives permission to Mordecai to send out letters to the Jews in all these regions saying, before they kill you, you kill them first. You're not going to get in any trouble. So they figure out all the people that plan on killing them, and they killed all the people and took their stuff. And that's where they had the wealth to share on the Purim holiday with the poor and the stuff. We don't talk about that part because it makes, makes people sound mean. It's just the ancient world, you know. People were killing everybody everywhere. Anyway, today the question is, are we willing to be vulnerable to serve God? The Jews back then were vulnerable and they were faithful to the point of death. How many Christians in America today, if the system turned against them and there was a death penalty for not serving the state, how many would stand by the faith and go, nope, you can kill me, but I am not giving up on my faith? And then how many people would actually give in and bend the knee and burn the incense to Caesar, whatever the modern equivalent is? We live in an age where personal integrity is really being tested. You know, America used to be a place that was based on personal conscience and individual free will, where the state, the federal government, was kept in, in check by the state government and then by individual rights. That's being really trampled upon right now. And there's a question of how far can this go before America is not really recognizable anymore. And I have to be clear, if America disappears tomorrow, God's plans on earth are just fine. They're just fine. I'm not here to worship America today. I don't worship the state. I worship the kingdom of God because it's, it's, I, I worship God whose kingdom is, is where I'm aiming at. But even so, the church deserves people who have the integrity to live by their convictions and not live in response to the fear that they feel from the state or from social norms or from the Taliban. We, God deserves Christians with that level of integrity. The reason that Esther is in the Bible, it's not, oh, look at this cool woman. It's, look at the standards set for people who didn't even know Jesus, but they knew the Lord. Look at the standard they were able to meet. And then look at the standard that you and I are called to. On a daily basis, the world is trying to get us to compromise our values, to fit in, to shut up, to get along. And we need to be like Esther, having the integrity to stand up and say, look, my very soul is on the line. I cannot be silent. Martin Luther, whenever he was put on trial for his convictions, I don't even like Martin Luther, but it's a great quote. He says, uh, conscience compels me. Here I stand. He couldn't lie. He couldn't be a dishonest person. And if we could just know that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life and stand by him, then everything's going to be okay. Will God protect us for all eternity? Yes. Will God avenge us of those who, who spilled our blood? Yes. God's justice is superior to ours. Whenever we get into the fray and we try and execute our own justice, it just prolongs suffering and causes more sin. Whenever we 
turn the other cheek. When we no longer stand up for ourselves, you know, Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Whenever you trust in God rather than your own sense of justice, what you'll find is God satisfies your longings as nothing else can do. The Bible is full with that testimony over and over and over again. And then the world cons us over and over again to believe that we need to stand up and we need to fight those and kill the bad guys. Otherwise, God's plans are going to be ruined. And nothing can ruin God's plan. God is not threatened. And you know what? Neither are we. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill your body and do nothing else. Fear only him who can kill your body and cast your soul into hell. Whenever you get that level of clarity that no matter what anybody does to your body, they cannot harm you. Well, that's someone worth being afraid of, someone who's no longer fear, a fear to the world. I've lived in Oklahoma too long, afeared, afraid. The standard has been set by Christ Jesus and then by thousands who have followed in his footsteps. The question before us each and every day is, are we going to live with integrity? Are we going to put our lives on the line? Are we willing to go into the place of danger for our faith? Or are we going to give in? Are we just going to be comfortable? And so part of what I hope we take home with us today is a, is a call to be bold and to stand by Jesus even and especially when it hurts. Let's, uh, let's go to our third reading. This is James. The thing we're going to focus on here is the power of prayer. And then we're also going to have this question of, can people who have fallen away from a covenant relationship with Christ Jesus through the church, can they be restored? Okay, all of this is connected to prayer. Also be asking this question of, can anyone give a powerful prayer, or is it only some people? So with those things in mind, Sarah, Beth, are you reading? Okay. Our third reading is from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, which begins on page 1884 of your Pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. So I just want to focus in, you know, I only want to focus in on one thing and then I want to move along. What kind of person's prayers are powerful and effective according to this reading? The righteous. The prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. What about the unrighteous? Is there an implication there? It doesn't say it outright, but there definitely is an inference that the prayers of the unrighteous are not powerful or effective. 
One of the countercultural things I find myself doing as a pastor, and it's not just against the culture out there, but a lot of culture inside the church. A lot of people believe that God hears and answers the prayers of just everybody. You know, I remember when I was in Mormon country, Mormon missionaries would go door to door doing their mission, and then they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, try and seal the deal that day. They would say, just pray about it, and we'll come back next week or next month. And then they would come back, and sometimes people would say, I prayed, and you know what? I think the Lord wants me to know more about the Mormons. Now, anytime, do people in other faiths pray? Not just Mormons, but Hindus, Buddhists, uh, uh, Muslims. They all pray, right? And then when they claim to have an experience of the divine, are they just all lying? Are they all in just some kind of delusion where they think they're experiencing something spiritual, but they're not? I find a lot of people haven't even thought of this. What if people of other faiths who pray actually are interacting with the spiritual reality behind the veil? But we know that it's not our God. I mean, that's the thing. I was raised in church to believe there is nothing in the spiritual realms except the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and maybe some angels. When you read the Bible, you learn that the spiritual realms are just as populated as the earthly realm. There are all kinds of beings and personalities there, and a lot of them are not in submission to Christ Jesus. What I believe is that when people who are not in righteous covenant relationship with Jesus pray and experience something spiritual... They are really experiencing something, but they are not experiencing our God. They are experiencing other deceptive spiritual entities. May, may or may not be Satan. Could be Zeus. Could be Osiris. Could be Mammon. There are all kinds of gods named in the Bible, named in the history books. I'm not willing to say all these people are imagining. I'm not willing to say all these people are lying. I am willing to say all these people don't know Christ Jesus and are praying to other gods that are not going to be able to save them. There is only one God able to save you, the God of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, known to us through Christ Jesus, whose Holy Spirit is with us today. That is the only God that you can pray to who is powerful and effective and will save us on the last day. Other gods might be able to do cool things this side of heaven. Remember when Moses appeared to Pharaoh? Moses had his own physicians. No, not Moses. Pharaoh had his own uh, magicians, I said physicians, magicians, and they were able to replicate the miracles of Moses. You remember that? That's because other spiritual powers do have power. They are real, and they threaten to take the loyalty of people away from Christ Jesus if we don't have discernment. And that's the thing. That's the problem right there. There are a lot of people who say, oh, I can have a healthy spiritual life outside of the church. I don't need the church. I don't need the Bible to know Christ Jesus. And I have to say, they are clearly having some spiritual life of their own, but they are not worshiping the God of the Bible. They're not. They're worshiping some other spiritual entity that they don't have the discernment to know the difference between. They've had an experience. Some God spoke to them, but it ain't the God of the Bible. The reason that we want to be righteous is so that we can have a direct relationship with God. Through the Holy Spirit, our prayers and petitions are taken Christ, up to Christ Jesus who brings our prayers to the Father. Sealed deal right there. And it's not just for our sakes. Who here loves other people? Yes, you do. Raise your hand. You love other people. You've got other people that you want to do well. 
and you need God to intervene in their life on your behalf because you can't make them change. But God can. But God isn't going to listen to you if you are not seeking him in your life. Why would God listen to people who are not seeking him? Why would God listen to people who are not hungering and, and thirsting for righteousness? What we find when we encounter the Bible is God wants to save us, but he has given us the means by which he's going to save. And he requires righteous intercessors. That's what we are. That's what we're supposed to be, a nation of priests. That's what priests do. They intercede between God and sinners. That's what priests do. That's you and me. Our point, purpose in life here is not to be a bunch of sinners. It's to be righteous people interceding between God and sinners. Does anybody here love a sinner? If you want to be able to help them, for God's sake, pursue holiness and righteousness in your daily life. Otherwise, you will be impotent. You will be unable to do any lasting good for the sake of others whom you love. If you don't care about yourself, but if you care for others, for the sake of others whom you love, pursue righteousness with all your strength and vigor so that God will attend upon your prayers and work miracles. A lot of people I know want that. Well, I'm giving you, I'm giving you some clarity today. If you want to work miracles for others, if you want God to intervene in the lives of others, pursue holiness with all your might. There is something you can do. It's not just hope and wish and pray. It's step up, pursue holiness, and pray. Our final reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 38 through 50, which you can find on page 1573 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, he just tells you who the little ones are, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye and to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. So as always, we don't have enough time to cover all the stuff we need to cover. I think the first bit's too complicated. I don't think we can do it. You know, it matters that people belong to Jesus. It also matters that Christians are able to discern that not everybody is our enemy. There are some people that our job is just to minister to them, let them see the light of Christ through us, and even if they don't choose to follow, they're not our enemy. You know, they're going to work it out with God. It's not our job to fight them. There might be days coming where we need some allies that are outside of our camp. 
Jesus says, if they see my power, they're not going to talk bad about me. That's worth thinking about. The, the part that's scarier is the part dealing with sin, causing us or others to stumble. You know, the, the metaphor here is that we're walking, that the path of life is something we're walking, and if we stumble, we might fall. He says, if you cause any little one, a person who believes in me to stumble, it would be better if you just kill yourself, really. I mean, it's a terrible thing to cause another believer to stumble and be thinking on all the things that you could possibly do to cause someone to stumble, and don't do those things. For God's, for your sake, don't do it. But sometimes you cause yourself to stumble. Sometimes you have part of yourself that gets between you and Jesus. What do you do about that? And Jesus says, cut it off. Cut it off. Self-amputate. Get it out of you. If you continue to be a safe place for that part of you that takes you from Jesus, you're not going to make it. And according to Jesus, is hell real? Yes. Sometimes he talks about it metaphorically, but even whenever he does, it's very clear. He says, the worms that eat the people there do not die. The fire is not quenched. It goes on forever. What was it, the sandlot? Where one of the kids is just saying, forever, forever. And that's an, a helpful thing. I mean, we, we have this notion that life sort of matters, that how we live sort of matters. Maybe God will punish us for a little bit in a place like purgatory. That's why the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is there. We can easily imagine God will hurt us a little bit. We cannot imagine that people will eternally suffer for the decisions that they make here and now. We cannot imagine that our lives day to day have that much gravity. But what if they do? There's no way we can wrap our minds around it. Every one of us lives lives that are somewhat mundane day to day. We don't feel the weight of our salvation on our shoulders. I'm quite certain that Jesus wants us to. So I don't, I don't think, you know, usually I'm making the case for a lot of different things. Right now, I just, I'm making the case, what if our lives matter more than we think? What if the way we live matters more than we think? What if salvation is real? What if hell is real? What if eternity stretches out before us, and even though we don't understand it, it's still real? What if it's real whether or not I understand it, whether or not I agree to it? What then? Christians are supposed to be the people who, with sober eyes, assess the situation and choose to reverse course. What's that called when you reverse course? Repentance. You're going one way, you choose another. You assess the situation, you go, this ain't working, I'm going to go a different way. That's called repentance. Every day we're called to repent. Every day we're called to pursue righteousness. And every day God is faithful. And he rewards the righteous, he listens to them, and he saves them in the end. Amen?